I don't want to rehash all of last week, but what I do want is to give you a few pointers about where we are because we had to stop in the midst of what we were looking at. And first, I want to give you a succinct definition of the church. A local assembly spiritually united in Christ with an autonomous nature. Localized assembly of believers is what it is. Now, don't get me wrong. When you walk out of these doors, are you still the church? Absolutely. We are always church. Church never ceases to be who we are. And this really helps in this age where everything is convenient, everything is expedient. I mean, if you're with Amazon, you can get it the next day now. But as far as church is concerned, it's never anything that you are not. And that's what makes this so serious. When Jesus died on the cross, we're told in Ephesians 2 that he broke down the middle wall of separation between distinctions like Jew and Gentile. And instead, he did something brand new, which if they believe in Christ, they're now brought in to Christ as his body. There's no longer the distinction sitting there. Instead, they are one new man, one entity. Any means of discrimination has been removed. We're all one in Christ. And that was his plan. That's his desire. Because by holding fast to that, it keeps all of us humble. Nobody's jockeying for position here. It's the idea of when we come together, Christ, the head of the body, is the central focus. It's exactly how it should be. Why? We are spiritually united in Him. When we looked at chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, there were four steps to deal with in church discipline. Now, let me rehash this for just a second. God has two goals for the church. One is earthly, the other one is heavenly. The earthly goal for the church is that we would be equipped such with doctrine that we would begin building one another up and encouraging one another to the point that we are such self-feeders of the Word of God that we are pouring into one another as every joint and ligament has been set in the body in that way so that we are constantly edifying ourselves in love. In other words, it's this predominant attitude of loving one another that God seeks to bring about in the here and now in the local body. Now, why is that? Think back to Jesus' words. Love one another as I've loved you, right? That's the new commandment he gave to the 11. For by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One of the most missed out evangelism strategies for the church, reaching people for Christ, is just in the way that we treat one another. Whether or not we're operating in love, it's a big deal. And I think that's a good point of self-evaluation maybe we need to think about. Now, the question's always been asked, well, how do you go about loving people like Tom? And he's not here, so I can pick on him without any retribution. But that, that's the secret. In and of ourselves, we can't. That's the first answer. It is not within me to do that. Why? Because if I had my choice, I would rather sin than obey. And so what I need is Jesus living his brand new resurrection life through me so that I am loving one another in supernatural ways. Anytime that you want to love somebody in a natural way, it's always about what you can get out of it. Loving someone in an agape way is something that only Christ can do through his people. And that is to be what characterizes us. As we are meditating and receiving Bible doctrine, we build one another up. Why? Because the goal is maturity in the church. The second idea is the heavenly showing. What is it going to look like when we get in front of Christ and give an answer for the evaluation of how we've spent our lives as believers? What will that look like? Jesus has given us everything we need to have a good showing. But I don't think by any means we need to dumb down the standard or criteria of which he expects of his body so that we will mature properly. And that is he desires holiness in the body. He desires for you and I to be set apart. Now, if the word holy means 
Set apart. Let me ask you a question. Set apart from what? Do we know? Sin would be one thing. The world would be another thing. And let me give it to you. Who else? Satan. It's pretty easy, right? It's pretty easy. Much harder to do, but it's easy to come up with the answers, right? And so here's the question. What do you do with believers who are in persistent, rebellious sin? Where they know what is right, but they refuse to do it. The church is not called to take a passive approach. We live in such an age of passivity. Let's just be quiet and not say anything, and hopefully it will go away. Guess what? It never goes away. In fact, it only gets worse. And so it's interesting to see in Matthew 16, Jesus gives an amazing proclamation before the church ever starts. He says, we're going to build this church. It's going to be my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then two chapters later, he says, and here's how you handle conflict and discipline in the church. Now, this is really interesting. We need to sit here and ponder upon how profound this is that he would make such an amazing statement about the church in 16 and then bring up this idea about how you deal with conflict in 18 and he hasn't even started the church yet. Does everybody see why that might be something we want to pay attention to? Jesus knows that when you get people together, you get conflict together. Why? Because we all sin. And sin has to be dealt with. Now let me say this before we run through this to pick up where we were. Sin doesn't surprise God. He's not surprised by it at all. Ever. But what is surprising to the body is for there to be such revelation as God has given such understanding 2,000 years on the other side of the crucifixion, knowing about his resurrection, knowing that he's at the right hand of the Father, knowing that he's interceding for us, knowing that he's pled our case before the Lord himself, knowing that he's offered his blood in order to cleanse us from all sin and set us completely free from sin, and then have people look at that and say, you know what, sin is still a better option. That's scary. And we know that because steps on how to handle a disciplined situation have been put into place, that it's possible to do better. It's possible to make better choices. It's possible to look at your life and say, yeah, what I'm doing is not gelling with the Word of God. When I, when I first got on fire for my relationship with Jesus, I won't go into the, to the mess that I was involving myself in, because that would definitely remove the Holy Spirit from wanting to sit here at all. But it got so bad that I was looking at my new on-fire life for Christ, and I'm like, yeah, there's something to this. I just can't believe. I felt like Jeremiah, if I don't let it out the word, my bones are going to burn kind of thing. I was excited about Christ. But I recognized that some of the behavior I was involved in my life, I could not continue on and have a clear conscience or be used for anything valuable that the Lord would have for my life. And so I had to pack up everything I had, and I moved 30 miles away just to get away from sin. Thank the Lord I met my wife. Praise Jesus. (laughs) We know her, amen. (laughs) Poor her, (laughs) right? Wasn't a good move for her. But doing whatever it took to recognize that if this sin is going to plague me, then whatever it costs to get out of its way and to let it go on by, I've got to. The situation we're looking at here starting in verse 15 is someone who said, you know what? I don't want to do what it takes to get rid of sin. I'm perfectly fine. Me and God are good. Just leave me alone. So let's read through it. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Notice it's a private situation. Not just in location, but also in discretion. That's important. If he listens to you, option A, you've won your brother. And remember what that means. You have acquired something by means of an investment. That's the idea. You've put clout in and you've received a great return. Because you did what the Lord called for, you got it back. Now that's option A. Why is that? Because not everybody listens. Does everybody listen? 
Absolutely not, right? They just don't do it. They just don't, yeah, everybody listens, they just don't do it. That's what it is. It's the follow-through I'm having problems with. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, option B, to you, take one or two more with you. So by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Still a private matter, but it's a situation where you need witnesses. You need someone to sit there and say, yes, this person has hardened their heart. They're in rebellion. No matter what truth you put before them, no matter what wise counsel you offer them, they remain steadfast. Their ego is their God. I mean, you got to have a savior somewhere. And if Jesus isn't giving you the right answer, what did you substitute him with? It's important that we see that, guys. We have to be discerning. So then what happens in step three? Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, which means that obviously a conversation went on and disobedience is continuing. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, tell it to the assembly, gather together the body of believers and expose this sin on this person for what it is and outline the steps that were taken by the people involved, in order to call this brother or sister to repentance. Maybe even go so far as to show them the scriptures that you put before their face. So when they said, you know what, there's nothing wrong with me, everything I'm handling is just great, this is awesome, I'm fine, leave me alone, get out of my business, this don't involve you. Because the church deserves to be knowledgeable, why? Because now it's the church's turn to turn around and to use email, or letter, or preferably, because Jesus wasn't using those back then, face-to-face conversation, where the body of Christ united together, and calling whatever that sin is as a sin, is now addressing it as Christ's body. Does everybody see the hefty responsibility involved in this? Yes? Who's asleep? Making sure. Okay, you are? Praise God says here, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, a pagan, an unbeliever is the idea, and a tax collector. This means disassociation. You are no longer welcome to fellowship in the body. This church is no longer an option for you. I'm sorry. Well, shouldn't we be gracious I tell you, if you've looked past this idea here, and you've come to a point where this is an ungracious response, I'm curious what you think about the Lord Jesus. Can I say something real frank and not get in trouble? Forgive me. I'm going to go ahead and ask for forgiveness. I don't even know if it's very spiritual for me to say it. Some people are full of crap. Let me just be honest. Some people have so bought into this idea that it's okay that they can mix the world and the way that the world does things and they can mix the church with it that somehow it comes out okay and Jesus is smilingly approved over the top of it. This verse tells me no. He says there comes a point when you're done. Why? Because it wastes time, energy, money and there's a lot greater things to be done than working with people who don't want to be worked with. Some people just don't want help. Some people don't care that God has something greater for them. We want to appear religious. We want to do all the right things. We want to say all the right things. We want to make sure that we've got X amount of Thomas Kincaid paintings in our house. Yes, I own five translations of the Bible. You know I'm right on with the Lord, whatever it may be. But there's something that is the appearance of godliness, but lacks a substance that the church has to put their finger on. Why? Because it's leaven. And when you let it go, it begins to pull everyone else around and with them. So what do you have to do? Disassociate. No fellowship. No going out to lunch, no hanging out, no coming over for the game, no phone calls, no emails. 
Why? Because people are smooth talkers. And they will do everything they can to get us off of the issue that sin is the problem. We cannot afford to dumb down sin. And Jesus doesn't. Neither should we. Why? Because the bride he wants at the altar needs to be spotless and chaste. I did a series one time at Resurgence. Boy, this got me in a lot of trouble. The Southern Baptists hated it. It was called Sexy Church. Now, I know some of you are like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with this guy? But the question was, what does the church need to look like if it's got an appointed wedding day with Jesus? How does a bride get ready to be at the altar with him? And to look in his eyes and without any hesitation whatsoever say, yes, I do. I do. And we had my friend Joanna. She was dressed up in a wedding dress. She's a hairdresser. And we took mud and we slung all over her. She had it coming down her face, down the dress, all in her hair and all this stuff. And that's what it was. We advertised the sermon series like that. It was her looking off in the distance. Man, she had a good look too. She was all like like, disappointment. And it just said sexy church. And why is that? Because the church needs to be highly concerned about whether or not we have allowed the bride of Christ to become blemished. Is there mud sprinkled on this local body of Christ? If there is, Jesus is not pleased. And if the idea of 1 John 1, 9, repentance and confession, holding people accountable encouraging, exhorting, loving one another to a better way of living, trying to disciple and build up and all those types of things, if that's not cutting it, and these steps have had no fruit, it's not just about saying I'm sorry. It's about having a track record that demonstrates the fruits of repentance. I'm sorry. You have to go. Well, why? Because you've demonstrated that you really don't care about anything that God has for you. And we do. And you're acting like a pagan. You're acting like a tax collector. Why is the tax collector thing so strange? Here's the reason why. is because tax collectors at this time were Jews that the Roman government who was in charge had recruited to turn around and betray their own people and not just collect the taxes for Rome, but they were also, as a self-serving commission able to take even more taxes as they wished from their fellow brothers in order to pad their pocketbook. Those are not fun relatives. That causes lots of problems at the Thanksgiving meal, doesn't it? And here's the thing, they couldn't say anything about it. It's whatever the tax collector wanted to take. Now notice, Jesus is very in tune with the culture, what's going on. The way that you feel about the IRS taking more of your money than what they should then what's fair, then what's right to support our government, our officials, those types of things. If they're trying to get more off the top and the way that makes you feel, guess what? You're supposed to look at that wayward brother or sister in the same way. That's how you look at them. But I thought Jesus was about love. This is the most loving thing you can do in this situation. You can't make anyone do anything. And if they don't want to do for themselves, then great. Go test out the waters and let's see how it goes. Now, this next part has really confused a lot of people. It says here, verse 18, Truly I say to you, notice that that's plural, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And immediately everybody stops in their Bible study and throws on the brakes and says, what in the world just happened here? A real key point that will help you in Bible study. Just keep reading a little further and see if the context sorts it out for you. And it does. Verse 19, watch this. Again, I say to you, or in the same way, or look at it like this, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Now, immediately everybody says, and, and read the last verse here. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. And we always invoke this in prayer. Because for some reason, God's not there when there's only one of us. We've got to get at least two together to get him to show up. 
It's just not worth, oh, you got her now? Okay, cool, I'm there. No, that's not what this means. This is talking about the decision that the church body would make in removing a brother or sister from their fellowship. So whatever we would bind, whatever we would confine, whatever decision that we would make in that way here on earth, because we've done so in a humble spirit, because we've done so in a prayerful attitude, because we've done so when we look at God's word and we reflect it upon what we're seeing in the person's life. Compare and contrast. What Jesus is saying here is when you make the decision to dismiss that person from your fellowship, know that heaven has already agreed with you. And if you look at the evidence and you say, you know what, it doesn't warrant that type of step, whatever you loose in heaven, whatever you've allowed, these were actually rabbinical terms at that time, whatever a rabbi would bind, you're to abstain from this, whatever he would loose, you can do this. Whatever a highly respected teacher in that culture said was good or bad, had hold. And what's interesting is, is that transfers to the idea of, if you've approached the situation and you've done it as Jesus has said, heaven agrees with your decision. Does that make sense? Okay. So now with that, we're going to look at a test case. Everybody turn over to 1 Corinthians 5. This is probably the most popular test case. And we're going to look next week at test cases as well. 1 Corinthians 5, a test case of what it looks like to implement church discipline. Now, immediately, some of you are like, of course, we're going to Corinthians. Those people had all kinds of problems. I tell you what, those people didn't have problems that are any worse than ours. We're just better at covering it up. The Corinthians, I guess, tended to be a little bit more flamboyant about their sin than we do. And you're familiar with this one. I don't want to harp too much on it, but I do want to give explanation, and I want to show the mechanics behind it, okay? If you go through the book of 1 Corinthians, you find out that the Corinthians have an arrogance problem. In fact, uh, it just, just to give you a little, if you want to mark it in chapter 4, verse 8, Paul exercises the spiritual gift of sarcasm. I just want to let you know, sarcasm is evil. Sarcasm's not evil if you're trying to make a righteous point with someone. And he exercises there. Look what he says. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. Who knew Paul was such a smart aleck? But what's he trying to prove to them? Their problem was is they thought they had it all going on. They didn't need anybody to teach them. They were really great at bringing fraction to the body of Christ and separating themselves in denominations. And some of them were a little bit more special than others based on who they'd been baptized by. Jealousy and strife were running rampant through there. They're having the Lord's Supper. Certain people who had a lot of things in their life had done well in society, would show up early, they'd eat all the food, they'd get as drunk as could be, and then when those who didn't have much would come in, there'd be nothing left for them. They're like, sorry. (laughs) Abusive is what it is. Inconsiderate. Not in keeping with the spirit of the body of considering one another better than ourselves. And so that's why Paul's letter here is largely of correction in this situation, and he addresses a big one. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. Now remember, we looked at this not too long ago when we were checking out Romans 1. And this idea of immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. And it's talking about a sexual immorality that is taking place. And it says here, an immorality of such a kind, now watch this, as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Okay, pause for a second, and let's put on our thinking caps and go back to Matthew 18 and think. The type of people that you were supposed to treat a wayward brother as, right? Gentile, tax collector, everybody remember that? Are not even committing the same type of sins that brothers and sisters in Christ in the body are committing. That means that believers are sinning in unique ways as opposed to the pagan mind of that time. Well, they must not really be saved. Paul doesn't feel that way. Otherwise, he wouldn't discipline them. And the context of this chapter tells us that. 
What do I have to do with outsiders? Outsiders are going to live like outsiders. But what we're supposed to be concerned with is the purity of the body. So notice what the problem is. A man has his father's wife, his stepmother. In fact, everybody see that word has? Everybody see that? The idea of if someone having a wife is the idea. That's what it actually means. It means that it wasn't just their sexual relationship. It was the fact that they had gone so far as to get married. They had actually stepped into matrimony in this situation. Now, are we under the law? No, we are not. But the law is the written perfection of God, and it gives a lot of insight into situations. Mitch, if you wouldn't mind, Leviticus 20. Bring that up. If you want to jot this down. Interesting verse that deals with this very type of situation. If there's a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered her father's, his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Which, by the way, everybody see that idea has uncovered his father's nakedness? It lets you know what goes on with Noah and his son after the flood. Is the fact that he actually came in and was trying to approach Noah's wife, his mother, in a sexual way. So notice, it's, it's depravity of a type where Gentiles are like, we ain't doing that. That's weird. Can you imagine unregenerate people condemning the church? Everybody see how bad that is? Corinth had sin going on that pagan people didn't even think about. So now how does Paul deal with this situation? Look at verse 2. You have become arrogant. This word means blow up is what it means. Like you're inflating a balloon. You've become prideful about this situation. This guy's sexual escapades have become a means of boasting for you as a body applauding it, championing it, encouraging it. Now, we don't have any instance that they were actually encouraging this behavior. Let me ask you a question. What does silence do? Think about it. Everybody just got done having Thanksgiving feast, right? How many of you hung out with family? How many of you hung out with family that have differing religious or political viewpoints than you? Okay. Silence was probably not had at that table. And you know how it is. You say something, and all of a sudden the bear traps come open, don't they? They're going to catch somebody. Can't say anything about anything without saying something about everything. It's just the way it is. Silence allows persistence in foolishness. So notice, you're arrogant. You're puffed up. Look what he says after that. You have not mourned instead The problem with this congregation is that they were tolerant and open-minded and politically correct. What does that sound like? You've heard me say this before. Some churches are so open-minded, their brains have fallen out on the floor. I guarantee you this. God gave us brains to think, and he gave us the word of God to tell us how we ought to think. Only it defines truth. So when we sit here and we deal with this idea of a tolerant and open-minded church, we're just trying to be open to all people. Or this dumb thing that the Methodists have done with this idea of saying, don't put a period where God put a comma. Who in the world brought punctuation into this at all? And what are they trying to say? Homosexuality is okay. Invited into the church. Embrace these people. Love them and their sin. It's all about love. It's not about love. It's about lust. It's about depravity. It's about, let me do what I want to do, and I'll guarantee and put a few dollars in your offering plate if you're okay with my sin. Why? Because everybody needs validation when they're in the darkness. Paul says, you can't afford to be silent about this. You can't afford to be puffed up and arrogant about this. Notice, you should have mourned instead. Let me ask you a question. Do you personally mourn over sin? Does it create grief in your heart? And here's what we do. Well, whatever they do in their own spare time is their own thing. Let me tell you, if that's the case, you don't understand the teaching of the church. We are all intimately linked together because we are all part of one body. Trust me, all you need for this, all you need is an example, an illustration is for you to get an itch somewhere and then leave your hands be. What do you do? Start trying to find some way to scratch it, but what you realize is the itch won't go away unless you get another part of the body involved. Why is that? Because it's all connected. 
And there's nothing that one part of your body is going to do by itself that is not going to include other parts of the body. That's why we are body of Christ. Every person counts. Every member matters. Every one of us, you, me, doesn't matter, are indispensable to the makeup of the whole of what Christ wants to accomplish. So don't sit here and think, well, I'm just insignificant. No. Believers that are in sin are mourning situations. Why? Because that grief will trickle down to the rest of the body. Notice it says here, and have not rather mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now, this is a fun Greek word. It's iro. And it's the one in chapter 15 of John that talks about that the branch is taken away. The word can mean lifted up. That's the primary meaning in the lexicons, lifted up. But it also means taken away. You say, why in the world are we talking about this? Because in a minute, we're going to see it come back around and smack us in the face. So notice that they be removed from your midst. If someone is committed to marriage and having this sexual relationship with their stepmother, here's the process that you take. Disassociation. Why? Does God find any pleasure in this? I had to go through a church discipline situation with a girl who's a lesbian. And we sit down and we lovingly pleaded with her. And when she started having thoughts about this and was going to entertain this idea, she didn't come to help for nobody. Instead, she surrounded herself with Christian pro-gay literature for three years. And when you tried to introduce the Word of God into the situation, she didn't want to hear anything about it. She didn't want us praying for her. She didn't want us loving on her. She didn't want us encouraging her because that's how disciplined situations are to be taken. It's constantly pointing people back to the Word of God and the sufficiency of Christ always in every situation. And in our last conversation, I knew she wasn't going to come back. We didn't ask her to leave. We wanted to work with her through the situation. We were seeking for reconciliation in it. But I looked at her and I said, before you walk through that door, I've just got one question. I want you to look me in the eye and I want you to tell me that what you're doing with your life right now makes God smile. She hung her head and she said no. She walked away. She had every clever argument that had ever been devised for why her behavior and her choices were okay. But when it came down to asking the question, is your Lord pleased? She couldn't agree. She knew. She knew deep down. A sin of this nature, remove. Why? Desecration of marriage. Desecration of how intercourse should be responsibly handled. Failure on the church's part. Verse 3. For I on my part, though absent in body, Paul's not there, but present in spirit, have already judged him. I thought we weren't supposed to judge people. Is that, that what that means when it says that in Matthew 7? No, it's not. Notice it says here, I've already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In other words, if Paul would have been standing there in the midst of the church, he would have said, here's how you handle this situation so that Christ is glorified. Here's how you handle this situation so it begins to get through to this hard-hearted, hard-headed person. It says here, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I want to show you this, there are four standing points here that give the right to make this type of decision as a body. Let me label them for you. A, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Invoking Jesus' name is serious. To sit there and to say, Jesus would approve of this, requires us to do a lot of heart searching and mind searching before we make a claim like that. You say, well, I don't know that I would have the audacity to do that. The Bible tells you this is the authority that you have to stand on. Notice that God didn't outsource this to the courts. Everybody see that? Notice he didn't put this in front of pagans to judge a situation. Why? Because they have no bearing on truth. That's important for us to understand, guys. Let's not get all screwed up like our justice system has all the answers. Are they agents of God? Yes, they are. Have they dismissed the scriptures? Yes, they have, and much to our detriment in our society. The church as an entity is the highest ruling authority in spiritual matters, period. 
And those type of situations should come before the church in order for them to make decisions that are humble, prayerful, and discerning with God's word open before them. So number one, you have Jesus' name in this situation. Look what it says, B, when you are assembled. Now what does that mean? Gather together the local assembly. Well, I think this is talking about the universal church. The universal church isn't gathered together until the rapture. That's a long time to wait to make these decisions. We're talking about the local body of believers. The local body of believers assembled regularly. And when they did, that's when they were to deal with this type of issue. How about C? I with you in spirit. In other words, because Paul has already made his judgment known. He's already given his authority as an apostle of Christ about how this should be handled in a way that pleases God. And look what it says after that. Uh, Let's see here. D, forgive me. With the power of the Lord Jesus. You say, well, what in the world is that? What did we just read in Matthew 18? Whatever you bind on earth, what? It's bound in heaven. Because the church has made this type of decision and has come to a common agreement on it, you know that heaven already approves of the decision that the church has made. It's a done deal. Why? Because Christ has put his authority in the local church in order to exercise and dispense his will amongst the church. Christ's will is never accepting of sin. It never is. And that's why this has to be dealt with so harshly. Notice it says here, verse 15, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. The word deliver, to hand him over. To such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Does that mean that he's lost? No. But his behavior, because it is full of sin and unrepentant sin, comes from Satan. Let's be honest, guys. Our actions come from one or two masters, right? Either Satan's running the show or Christ is running the show. But if you're in sin, you can guarantee that Jesus has no part of what you're doing. So let's not play like he does or play like that he's accepting. Jesus is not a tolerant person. He's a gracious person, but he's not tolerant. God is not tolerant of sin. The Son of God died because of sin. That's how intolerant God is of it. So that's why we have to be very sharp and tuned in with this. Notice it says here, I've decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words... Let that person keep going in the type of sin that they're participating in and let them reap what they're sowing. Whether that be a failed marriage, whether that be how awkward the next family reunion is going to be, whether it be STDs, whether it be the fact that this ends in divorce. If this is the direction that he wants to go, then stop fighting him and let him go, but don't let him bring that junk in the assembly anymore. It's gone. There actually are, in the Bible, sins leading to death. We're not told specifically what they are, but if a believer persists in sin and so desecrates the name of Christ, God has every right in the world to end that life. He has no problem doing that. And no one will ever accuse him of wrong. That's what it is to live in a holy fear of the Lord. But I thought God was all gracious and loving. He is. But when you've rejected the infinitely greater things that he has put in your stead and supplied you with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, and we want to live our lives outside of Christ Jesus, what are we expecting to get out of this situation? We're supposed to be gracious and merciful. Whatever our definition of grace and mercy is, of somehow sin is okay, has become warped by the world. It's not okay. It's never okay. And here I am running out of time. But we don't have Sunday school, praise Jesus. Here we go. Notice, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Is he still saved? Yes, he is. What's he going to have to show for it at the judgment seat of Christ? This is someone who is actually going to experience loss at the judgment seat of Christ if they do not repent, 1 Corinthians 3.15. This is someone who's going to think, and probably because they built it up from their own garbage, that they're going to have something before him, and he's going to find out whatever he had, he actually has none. Still saved, still going to heaven, still redeemed. Blood of the Lamb has paid for his sin, but how he stewarded his life on earth when he had that responsibility of how to respond to life's decisions, 
as by fire. He will smell like Marlboro's on the other side, I guarantee it. Verse 6, notice this, your boasting is not good. Now here's where it's revealing about the attitude of the church in this situation. Some of you may have the word glorying. Does anybody have glorying? Anybody got something different besides boasting or glorying? The idea of this is actually taking pride in something. Any of you guys ever taken pride in something that you made with your hands? Yeah, I did, and then it fell apart. That's usually how it goes for me. But you look back at that and you go, yeah, it looks good. Take pride in your children, right? Oh, I can't believe he got that. My son hit a hole in one, the first hole in miniature golf over the summer. I about lost my mind. I realized it was a fluke. I was like, I don't know who this dad is coming out of me, but gosh, he was all about this. You know, I'm throwing him up in the air. Yay! That's the idea. Boasting in it. And now watch, Paul asks a question. In church, it's a serious question for us to think about. Do you not know? Which obviously, and here's what I do anytime I see that. Anytime that Paul says, do you not know? Anytime I'm in Bible study, I sit there and I think, I probably need to know whatever he's going to tell me. Because I'm probably worse off for not knowing it. So I circle that word no. There's something I need to know. Do we not know as a church, watch this, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Does that take you back to Deuteronomy 16? Do you not know that all you need is a bit in order for it to be entirely infectious? How do we know this? Is it not the same with cancer? When's the best time to catch cancer, Roxanne? Early. First chance you see it. Get it now. Why? Because it's going to be that much more painful to remove as it grows and could become uncontrollable and could lead to death. When's the best time to catch cavities? Early. Why? Because it spreads quickly, doesn't it? When's the best time to get a hold of disobedience in your child? Early. Anybody tried to whip a 13-year-old in shape? Right? You just put a dunce cap on that person and dismiss them, right? What in the world were you thinking? Why? Because you start teaching your kids early. Don't touch that. Don't do that. I love it. My son looked at me yesterday. He goes, Daddy, I'm not going to say stupid anymore. I said, that's fantastic. Thank you. That warmed my heart. Why? He's coming to a moral decision in his life where he has known that me and his mom have expressed disapproval. Praise God. Three and a half years old, he's weighing out right and wrong. I'm like a 14-year-old can't understand that. Praise Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. What does it accomplish? Anytime I've ever said it, it's never, it's never helped anything. Appreciate it. Hey, Lord knows your heart. So, here's the word. I want to show this to you. Verse 7. Look what it says. And and, and just real quick, let me go ahead and warn you. Verse 7 is fire. This verse is on fire in context. And I hope that that the Holy Spirit adds it to your understanding the way that he has done to mine and so impressed upon me how stellar, incredible, marvelous this verse is. Look what it says. Everybody see these first two words? Clean out. Now, I'm not going to so burden you with my horrible pronunciation of Greek. But let me give you some things about this. Number one, this is a word that is derived from the word where we get catharsis. Something being cathartic. It also starts with the prefix ek, like we talk about ecclesia, a called out people, a called out assembly of people, called out. Ek is out, which means gotta go, out. And here's another interesting thing. It also has resemblances of the word that we saw before with removed, Iro. So notice, it's the idea of a cathartic removing out. And notice he doesn't say, let me clean it out. Does everybody see that Jesus is not the one cleaning it out? We are not in passive position here. We are active. Clean it out. What does that mean? It means we might need to get a Brillo pad. It means we might need to roll our sleeves up. It might mean that it's messy. But because it's derived from the word catharsis, it means that it's going to be healthier and better on the other side. 
The church cannot afford to be enablers with sin. We sometimes confuse grace with enabling. No, what that is is more sin that we're committing by letting sin continue. That taught no one nothing at any time. Paul says, no, clean it out. Clean out the old leaven, here's the reason, so that you may be a new lump. Now pause for a second and think about that and look at his next statement. Just as you are in in fact unleavened. What does that say? It says that church, your position in Christ is one of holiness and blamelessness. That's the whole idea of justification. It's God declaring you legally righteous, not making you legally righteous as if you're not sinning anymore. It's the fact that when he sees you and he sees you through the glasses of his son because you're now in Christ, he finds no spot, no wrinkle, no sin, no blemish, no problem. And if that's the case, that's who we really are. What he's saying is, is church, your practice doesn't look like your position. You truly are already an unleavened lump. Now clean this garbage out and get it out of your fellowship so that your practice will begin to approach your position. Why? We've been saved for a lofty purpose. But no one ever reached the lofty purpose, the works that God has graciously put for the church to do by saying that sin was an essential element to get the job done. You cannot build the church using the devil's tools. It will not happen. And so what do you have to do? You have to deal decisively with sin. You have to clean it out. Why? Because we've lost sight of our position and we've let our practice falter and fail in the mix. No, go back to your position and then live from that acceptance. Make choices in light of that acceptance. And then he nails it at the end of this. Look what he says. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. The debt's already been paid. Whatever we owed to God is already gone. So don't live any longer like you're still in debt. The chains of sin have already been broken. Stop living like the old person and live like the new person that you are. The court's problem was they had an identity crisis. They didn't know who they were in Christ. They didn't know that they were God's friend. They didn't know they were God's child. They didn't know they'd been seated in the heavenly places alongside Christ. They didn't know they had every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They didn't know that the Holy Spirit now indwelled them and sealed them and guaranteed as a deposit the day of their redemption. They didn't realize that all the garbage was out of the way and now they could pray and God would listen. Direct communication all the time. They didn't recognize that the love of Christ had been manifested in their heart, that our life is hidden with Christ in God, that we can now set our minds on things above rather than things below. They were having an identity crisis. Christ has already died for all this mess. Stop wallowing in it. He's already paid the penalty. Move on. Get past his death and get on with living his life. One last verse. Turn to Romans 14. Some of you are starting to tap out. I'll get you home before noon. Don't worry. Sorry, Romans 13. <clears throat> when my life is an on-fire believer in 1998, was getting bound up in all kinds of sexual sin, and I had to make the decision to uproot everything I have and move away. This is the verse that prodded me. This is the verse that the Holy Spirit used to slay me. To get over myself and to move on. To recognize that Jesus had infinitely greater things than what I was settling for. And because I wasn't belonging to a local body at that time, I had no one to speak truth into my life or to hold me accountable. I was just a church floater. Why not? That's the way we shop for groceries, right? So why not shop for churches that way? Notice it says here, verse 12, Chapter 13 of Romans, verse 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. The day of judgment he's talking about. Therefore, because of that, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. 
and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Notice that Paul wouldn't tell you to do this unless you had the ability to do it, and you do. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And here it is, verse 14. Here's our great alternative that the believer in Christ has available. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Here's a question I want to wrap this up with. Right now, are you wearing Christ? We're wearing something. Well, of course I am. I'm a Christian. That's obviously not what this is talking about. It's talking about in the way that we are living our lives. Have we put on Christ? Or do we keep making provision for the flesh? Sometimes we wonder why our Bible study is not fruitful. Why our prayer life isn't fruitful. Why our evangelism opportunities aren't happening. Why it is that we just can't seem to get anything out of Sunday mornings when we're here. Maybe we've gotten such a puffed up, overinflated, boisterous view of ourselves, we forgot what it was like to put on Christ. That's where we confess sin. But notice what Paul's saying. Live with the day in mind. Don't waste it. Don't spend your time messing around in all this stuff that Jesus already saved you for. Instead, live saved. Everybody see that? Christ has already died for this. You are already unleavened. Now be unleavened. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the completeness that we have in Christ. We don't need to entertain sin. You have rescued us from those things. Because of your spirit, because of the indwelling Christ, because of complete forgiveness, because of unbelievable acceptance in him, because of the gift of eternal life, you have now given us the ability to say no to sin. Maybe we're greedy, maybe we're gluttonous, maybe we're liars, maybe we are sexually immoral, maybe we are schemers, maybe we are thieves. But regardless of what it is, you've called us to better and we truly are better because we are in Christ. Help us to see whatever leaven there is, to clean it out, to recognize our Passover lamb is already sacrificed. That we need to humble ourselves before the cross. And we need to get out of our own ways so that Christ can be all he is in us. It is a much better avenue to choose humility and repentance and reconciliation rather to endure the pain of church discipline. I pray, Father, as a body we would be unified on your word. I ask it in Christ's name.